Sinister Myth, How Stories We Tell Perpetuate Violence. This podcast challenges cultural mythologies about sexuality in the West, because so often they encourage, perpetuate, or foster violences against women and minorities. It is supported by an Ohio State Affordable Learning Exchange grant and is created by Zoe Brigley thompson and Brendan Walsh. Sinister Myth is produced by Alex Amater, Deborah Eschen, Paul Kotheimer, and Mackenzie Warren. All opinions expressed are solely those of Sinister Myth producers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of The Ohio State University. Hi, I'm Alyssa Washuda. I'm a member of the Cowlitz Indian Tribe and an essayist. I'm an assistant professor at Ohio State where I teach creative nonfiction and this semester Native American literatures. My books are My Body is a Book of Rules, Starvation Mode, and the new collection Shapes of Native Nonfiction Collected Essays by Contemporary Writers, which I co-edited with my friend Teresa Warburton. Thank you so much. We're so glad to have you on Sinister Myth today. And I wanted to start off by talking about something that I really admire about your work, your nonfiction. And I remember the first time I saw you read, And you read this piece and you were playing with the forms of dating apps and talking about (laughs) online dating. And it was a really powerful and thought provoking piece of writing. But the thing that struck me the most about it was the speaking voice that you have in these essays. And I feel like the voice is so powerful and so challenging because it refuses to be ashamed about anything that's happening in the essay or that's, that it's describing. In fact, it writes through shame, beyond shame, <laughs> and lays narratives out in this incredibly defiant way. And I absolutely loved that about your work. And I wondered if you could speak a bit about how that voice developed and thinking about your subject matter, you tackle subjects that are particularly important, live wires into social problems in America at the moment. So thinking about sexual violence, mental health issues, for example. And I wondered how this voice came about and what drew you to these important subjects as well. I think I, you know, I learned about voice first as a fiction writer when I was um, an undergrad. I was writing poetry before that. I know that we really had voice as a significant part of our our craft education and fiction. So, you know, I was coming up with these characters who were supposed to not be me. And <laughs> so I think most of my protagonists really were not me. They were people who I knew. I just wanted to write stories about them. So I had an education already in voice coming into writing nonfiction, which I, I basically started when I started graduate school. And I think I realized that some of the tools of fiction were transferable to the essay. And I had already really been fascinated with the idea of voice and, you know, really bringing personality and ways of conceiving of the world to the page through diction and syntax. And that was kind of my thing in fiction. Um, I was great at dialogue. Um, trash at plot. It was absolutely terrible (laughs) plot, but, you know, creating these characters and getting them on the page using 
uh, diction and syntax was really something I, I was into and something I was good at. And so I brought that into the essay. I think that in my early nonfiction education, I was really influenced by a number of writers' ideas about craft. One of them was Philip Lope and his idea of turning oneself into a character. And for me, it started with voice, just really using voice to locate myself in time. Because I was writing about the past. I was about 22 when I first started writing My Body is a Book of Rules. And I was writing about my 20-year-old self, which, you know, it's not, <laughs> not that far apart in time. But a lot of things had changed. A lot of things had happened. And I was trying to bring this person to the page who I no longer was in a lot of ways. I was working on locating and representing the self that was immediately post-rape, the self of, in the psychiatrist's office, the self binge drinking Smirnoff ice and what's the other one? The, the <laughs> <laughs> Mike's hard lemonade. Is that, a, is that a thing? It's been a long time, but I was trying to locate those selves and I'm just better at remembering self through voice and the way that my, my mind sounded inside my head. Later, I read The Art of Memoir by, by Mary Carr, and she talks about voice not as just a way of speaking, but she says it's an operative mindset and a way of feeling oneself alive inside the past. My students kind of smirk when I say this because I say it so much. I'm just really enamored with that idea mm -hmm. of voice. And, you know, the idea that voice is not just the words we use. It's not just diction and syntax. It's what we choose to represent. All of that is voice, what we, what we take in and what we put out onto the page. And so I think that voice for me now becomes very intentionally structural and formal in the choices that I make on the page, what research I choose to introduce, what um, episodes I choose to recount, and how, and how I do it. And so, you know, right now I'm revising my book, White Magic. And in the phase right now where I'm cutting things and really cutting one word after another, just really trimming. And that's the kind of thing that I think would have made me nervous when I was writing My Body as a Book of Rules. I thought, you know, kind of all these extra words that were the ones that I used to get the ideas down on the, onto the page, I thought that was voice, you know, just getting my thoughts down as they came to me. But I'm realizing that that's not where my voice is, not in all the extra words that I use to express myself in conversation when I'm telling a story quickly, whatever. Voice is in something else. It is in, you know, the way that I envision the world and the way that I imagine things and what I choose to include and what I choose to leave out. Mm, yeah, thank you. Thank you. And another thing that I love about your essays are the innovative forms that you find for them. So in My Body is a Book of Rules, you have the format of a letter from a former psychiatrist. One essay mimics a kind of academic essay format. And you've played with online dating profiles as well to tell stories. And with each of these formal innovations, I feel like 
is very much critiquing particular institutions, which is very clever. And I wondered if you could talk about how do you find the right form for your essays? I was really excited to use these received forms. When I was first writing nonfiction, I don't know when I first encountered these forms, but it was definitely in graduate school. And um, I'm sure I was reading work by Brenda Miller and Suzanne Paola to learn about the hermit crab form. And it just seemed really exciting because these kinds of documents and text forms were they were just part of my world. You know, I was like <laughs> going to the pharmacy constantly and getting psych meds and they came with the way too many papers and they've got the staples mm. through them that go through right. your fingers when you try to separate <laughs> everything. So I felt like these were great containers for not just those stories, but f to really convey the experience of encountering and holding the tension that they brought into my life. I felt the more that I was writing into these documents, the more I realized that the issues of identity that I was working through were really built using these documents, some of which I did not choose to have define me, like the prescription drug information I got from the store. I liked the tension between my personal individual experience of trying to, trying to date um, online as a person with quite significant and fairly new trauma and also being prescribed medication, just how individual that is, how personal that is, and how deep inside the body it is, and just like how it's all through the body and all through the mind and all through my actions. There's a real tension for me between that and this stock language and these stock forms that we find ourselves pushed into or we find ourselves choosing to fill. So I really enjoyed that inherent structural tension where the subject matter and the just the shape of the text on the page could really not work together at all, but instead work against one another. There was a real tension for me in that that became really exciting and it became a way of replacing plot for me. <laughs> Found a way around it. But it's also very funny. And this is the interesting thing because your work can be so moving and so thought provoking. And yet it can also be so funny because, you know, you have the letter from the psychiatrist and the commentary on the, the patient. And there's a kind of tension between what the psychiatrist sees and what we feel to be true. And you can sort this kind of humor in the mismatch. Mm -hmm. Or if you're thinking about the dating profiles, the way that you subvert the dating profile and the dating profile is no longer in the language that dating profiles are supposed to be in or thinking if you're analysing other people's dating profiles, the kind of ridiculous things that people post or that they're expecting to get out of the process is very funny too in, in a kind of a darkly comic way. I mean, that's always been how I've operated with humour and joking about things and I think, you know, maybe it's a product of being from Jersey. And, <laughs> you know, I I know where I grew up, people were 
very sarcastic and I've become a lot more earnest. I don't, I, I'm not like a, you know, like a Tinder guy who sees sarcasm as a badge of pride, you know, you must be fluent in sarcasm. Uh, definitely not like that. I mean, I'm a very earnest person because I know it's called for a lot of the time. I think I've sort of left behind a lot of that sarcasm I was around growing up and the kind of cutting humor that is at other people's expense. But I really have held on to humor as a way of dealing with difficult things and joking about my own pain. I think I hold back a lot in life because I've moved around. You know, I grew up in Jersey. I went to school in Maryland, which was similar in a lot of ways. And then I went to grad school in Seattle, which is very different. The stereotype of Seattleites as passive aggressive is very accurate. It was absolutely true to my experience. And I think people here in the Midwest seem more earnest, um, which I like very much. So I find myself adapting willingly to the places where I move. And I want to be able to communicate with people in a way that's kind and clear. I think the page, though, is mine. And I get to be who I always have been there. And I get to joke about these things that have happened to me that are terrible. And I don't Mm. care if it makes somebody uncomfortable. Mm. They can just walk away from the book. If they find me joking about my own stuff offensive, that's okay with me. Mm. I'm not being oppressive. I'm not joking at someone else's expense. So the page, I think, is a place where I really can keep that in the way that I don't so much in life. I don't bring it to Twitter so much. I don't bring it to too many conversations, not as much as I used to with my friends, but it's still there in the page for me. You know, I think that this book does something really trailblazing. I think it does something really incredible in writing about women's sexuality, because you write about all kinds of things all manner of intimate and personal things, sexual experiences, thinking about medicating for for mental health and this kind of thing. And you do it in such a defiant, such a shameless way, as if to say, we have been forced to be silent about these things. We have been told that we shouldn't talk about these things in polite society. Well, screw that, basically. And I'm going to tell you all about it in this very defiant way. And there's something so liberating and wonderful about reading that. I'm thinking back to when I was dating this man. I was like 30, I think. I was 30 and newly sober, and I was dating this man, and he read my book after our first date. I didn't ask him to. I didn't want him to. But I'm glad he did because he read it. You know, we dated for a little while, but he couldn't stay with me because I was just too angry. What mm. he read in that book was so angry and he couldn't reconcile it with the person who I was in mm. front of him. And I have really thought about that a lot. Just, I am very angry. I am so, mm. I'm super angry, you know? And yeah. um, I think for a long time, I thought that was bad. I mean, I was raised Catholic. Anger is a sin. Mm. You're not supposed to be angry. You can, Mm. you know, you can sin by thinking. That's what I was taught as a young Catholic. And Mm. so I really tried to suppress it. But I think there's societal rules against being angry Mm -hmm. and certainly seeming angry. 
I never I never gave a second thought to how I felt about anger, how I felt about my own anger. I just, you know, that was just the way it was. And yet when I started writing the essay, started making these essays into a book, I realized that there was quite a lot to be angry about that, you know, yes, yeah. honestly, you know, it was not fair what had happened mm. to me. It's mm. not fair mm. and it's not right. And I'm still angry about it. Mm. I'm, angry about so many things that were in this book. And so I think that bringing the anger to the page has been a way for me to have a healthy sense of anger in life. Mm. And it's interesting because so often uh, women who are angry, and especially women of color as well, Mm -hmm. the justified anger that they feel is sometimes discounted because there's this kind of attitude or it's just because they're angry mm-hmm. it's just because they're angry people mm-hmm. you know it's, it's not that they've got some justified reason for being angry it's just that they're angry people and I think that that's something we have to break down as well right this idea that it's not okay to be angry because I think sometimes it's absolutely okay to be angry when there's been some kind of injustice or unfairness and that we have to try and push back on that Yeah, I think for Native women, we are pushing up against this stereotype of the placid Indian maiden, Sonsire from Broken Arrow, and just the compliant Native woman who's there for the cowboy. Considered in the context of those stereotypes, any kind of animation is seen as wrong and inconsistent with how we are supposed to act by non-Natives who are very influenced by those representations. And so, yeah, I mean, anger sort of gets as filed away as activists or bad Indians, renegades, you know, non-compliant. Yeah. And you talked a bit about your Catholic background and also about your Native background. And one of the themes that seems to come up in this podcast is things that happen to us when we're young and how we're educated or not, what we're taught or not. The, the kind of stereotypes that we internalize and also the things that we should be learning that we aren't taught. And it was interesting reading your book. You talked about how there were these portraits of saints all sacrificing women in Catholic school that you were supposed to emulate. And then you also talk about the projections that other people put onto your identity because of your native background, how they have kind of stereotypes at hand that they project onto you. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about that, about education, what we learn, what we internalize and what we should be learning instead of the education that we're getting. It's sort of hard for me to think about everything I learned and how I learned it because Mm. I don't even know, you know, I know what picture books we had around of the saints and I remember some pieces of it. Yeah, I started in Catholic school when I was in kindergarten and was there through seventh grade. You know, so I had direct religious education and some of my teachers who gave us those lessons, including sex ed, you know, that Mm. was that was folded into our religion classes. It was called Mm. Family Life. We had it in fifth and sixth grade, I think. And I still have one of the textbooks. And it's interesting to to see that and to see all the use of metaphor in that (laughs) book, you know, like there's a section I just keep remembering, you know, and there's a woman and a man who are 
wading into a lake and they pull out a silver chalice together. And that was in the sex ed book. And I was like, what is it? What is this silver chalice? I, right. st- I still don't actually <laughs> I don't know exactly what it is, but I think it's sex. I don't know. <laughs> um, I think a lot of very complicated ideas that are very important to get clear with children were presented to us in metaphor, in veiled mm. language, in very obscured sideways ways and Mm. coming in from strange angles like that chalice as metaphor. So I think once I got to public school, I was just shocked by what I was learning and I didn't feel ready. Mm. I remember in eighth grade seeing in sex ed class, we watched a video of a live birth and I think I just wasn't ready having just come from Catholic school where we didn't learn anything that was clear, direct, and real when it came to the body. There was so much in Catholicism has to do with body metaphors. The body of Christ, according to Catholic doctrine, it's not a metaphor. It really is the body, but Mm. I mean, it's, it's a metaphor. So switching so quickly to the real, concrete, actual was very hard for me. And I mean, it seemed funny and it it seemed wrong in a way because Mm. I hadn't been prepared for it. I remember my high school health teacher, she was great. She had this chart that she used for sex ed. It was just, you know, like an image of a uterus and a vagina and ovaries and she would take this tube of spermicide and squeeze it right onto the image. And so you could see where it had been bleached away over the years because she did this over and over. So there was a real disconnect between that, you know, metaphoric meaning and those real details. And I, I think maybe the essay in some ways became a way for me to reconcile metaphor and the real. And that's work I'm still doing. Um, you know, I'm still writing about that in this book I'm writing about now, you know, what is metaphor and what is real and where's the overlap? I wanted to hone in as well. We're talking about narratives, particularly thinking about mental health and medication. And do you think there are any particular narratives that you especially want to challenge in your work about that? I felt like what I was working against was this idea that you can be happy if you want to be. You are in charge of your Mm -hmm. happiness. You can just make yourself happy, change your circumstances, change your attitude. You can be happy. I got sober in 2015. I found that my mood was more stable than it had ever been in my memory. And I was starting to see so many changes in my thinking and my feelings and my reactions and you know, I started to suspect that I might not be bipolar. I just had a feeling in my gut. And um, I talked to my psychiatrist and she didn't help me. So I started going to um, an addiction focused psychiatrist and he spent a lot of time talking to me and just going over my whole history. And he believed that I never had been bipolar. And he changed my diagnosis to PTSD and alcohol use disorder in full sustained remission. 
And so he and I talked a lot about what this meant for me and my identity as a person who had written a book about being bipolar. And so it was hard at first. It was hard because I still knew that the book was helping people who were bipolar and people were seeing themselves in it. And I just didn't feel ready to publicly talk about it. You know, as open as I am in my work, as open as I seem on Twitter, probably, there's still large parts of my life that I try to keep for myself. And that was one of them for years until earlier this year when I finally figured out a way to get it into an essay in a way that was really reflective of how I was thinking about it and how the diagnosis change was situated in my life and I needed some time to pass before I talked about it publicly. And so I think what I am trying to do with my work now is to really broaden my thinking about my personally, my diagnosis, not all diagnoses, but my diagnosis as a set of narratives and one larger shifting narrative and how it has been the story that was told about me by doctors, by other people, how it was the story I told myself and others about myself, and what happens when there's pivots in that? How mm-hmm. how do I chart that plot? How do I, you know, what's the dramatic structure of my mental health and my conception of my own mind? Mm. And something that I like in your essays as well is the way that you seem to really capture the strange relationship that we have with medical institutions and how you're very reliant sometimes on doctors to give you a diagnosis, to medicate you, to do all these things for you. And and actually that can be a little strange, sort of putting yourself in the hands of the of the institution, of the doctor, of the the medical institution and, and sort of trying to negotiate that. I think you capture that really well. But it's been absolutely amazing having you here on the podcast. And I've just loved all the things you've talked about. But right at the end, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about your brand new book, which has literally just come out, Shapes of Native Nonfiction, which you edited with Teresa Warburton. And I wondered if you wanted to tell us anything about that. Yeah, we're very excited about this book and also very tired (laughs) from... (laughs) You know, we've done, you know, quite a few interviews about the book and we've been touring a little bit. And it's just been so great to actually bring this thing out into the world after dreaming it up for so long and working on it. It's a collection of essays by Native writers that are conscious of form and are using form in interesting ways. And all of them are different. It's a very craft focused book. And we're very excited about this opportunity to to work with these amazing writers and bring their work together. It's an anthology that's very much focused on indigenous cosmologies and epistemologies and particularly those surrounding the basket and what the basket does and what it's for and what it carries and how it's formed. These essays are really carefully formed as well. So go out and buy this book now, as well as Alyssa's other books, which are all equally amazing. So you should be picking them up now if you haven't read them already. 
Thank you. It's been so good to be here. Yes, thank you.